Welcome to VBAC Birth Stories. You're listening to one of our bonus episodes where we interview experts in the field of birth and bring their specialist knowledge to you. We hope you enjoy this episode and it assists you on your birth journey. Today we're joined by a woman who used to chart the seas of Antarctica as a marine biologist. These days she's charting very different territory but perhaps the most epic journey of all. That is the pathway into birth and motherhood of course. We're welcoming to the show birth cartographer, author, doula and artist Catherine Bell. Here she is. So did that you is want the it? best introduction <laughs> ever. Thank you for having me. So I think it's quite an interesting story of how you went from this science background into birth mapping. So did you want to tell us about how you went from that background to motherhood and what you learned on that journey? The journey for me began in 2007 with my first pregnancy. Through that journey, I totally trusted my care providers. So basically I hitched my wagon to the care provider, stepped onto that treadmill and did the whole good girl patient thing. And after the birth of my first, which was a good experience, a satisfactory experience, but I was left thinking, hmm, that wasn't all it could have been. There were so many things I should have known. So what I discovered after my second was born was other mothers were feeling the same. The conversations were along the lines of, I wish someone had told me. I didn't know I had that option. So I started documenting all the questions that the other mums wished they'd asked, in addition to the ones that I'd thought I should have asked, and I accidentally wrote a book. And then I realised it wasn't just knowing the questions, but it was about understanding why we needed to ask those questions in the first place. It was really important to me that the book was from the reader's perspective. So whoever picked up that book was able to put it into their own context. I was one day sort of scribbling down what was in my head to try and make sense of it. And as I scribbled it out, I realized what I'd drawn on the page was a map. There were pathways, there were different detour points, there were intersections. This could lead to that, but you couldn't have a smorgasbord approach to it. It was pathways and once you'd made one decision some of those options were no longer available and that was really critical to understand when you were putting together what you needed to have happen during a labor and how you needed to communicate your needs because it wasn't enough just to say I want to avoid an epidural it was more important to understand if I do reach a point where I want an epidural what will that actually look like? And I tested it as all good scientists do. I tested it on myself first. And so with my third birth, I mapped it. And when I used the term map with my midwife, I noticed was that conversation opened up and I was suddenly getting answers to questions that when I had referred to it as a plan were shut down really quickly oh, you don't need to worry about that, or we've got that, or why, why are you bothered with that? You know, birth plans don't always go to plan. But because I was framing it as a map with different pathways, and at each appointment, I'd say, today, I'd just like to focus on 
the vaginal pathway or today I'm wanting to look at what the cesarean pathway might look like and they thought it was fascinating because I wasn't focused on just one possible way birth could play out this mattered to me because as a rural mom I live over an hour from the birth center I had to take into consideration the birth before arrival that was a very real pathway for me. So the map took on another form, which involved three main pathways that then had smaller pathways through it. So by experimenting on myself, the map took even greater shape and clarity. I decided I better go back to university and test it, <laughs> where the PhD comes in. When you were referring to birth plans versus birth maps and how the approach was changed when you mentioned the idea of a map. Do you think that there's a stigma associated with the idea of birth plans, women going into hospitals with birth plans? Absolutely. And as I've completed a systematic review so far, which should be published later this year, because I thought this has got to be a myth. Why is the word plan so problematic. Talk to any doula and they'll say, have a birth plan. It's really powerful because it is. The intent of a birth plan is incredibly powerful, but there are many care providers and many women who find the word plan really problematic and they can't get past it. And walls go up because plan implies that it's fixed plan implies that you're not flexible. When you use plan, you can end up finding you get some pushback because some care providers feel that it limits their professional autonomy. So it becomes a power game, their power versus your power. It felt like power was made up of a pie and it had to be shared, but no one wanted to lose any of their share of the pie in order for women to gain their pie. And I thought, this has got nothing to do with pie. Power is not (laughs) something that's divided. So when I tested out the word map, I found that they didn't lose their power and I gained the power that I should have had all along. The way that word changed the way the communication was happening. No one was feeling attacked. No one was being told what to do, whether it was me as the unqualified mother, like that scene out of the Monty Python skit with the machine that goes ping. You're not qualified. (laughs) It's like, well, actually, I do know me rather well. (laughs) So the, the change in conversation was really important. And as I investigated this more, What I found with the power imbalance was based on this idea that someone had to lose power in order for another to gain it. It does not have to be that way. It can be win-win. And what the birth map seeks to do is ensure that the care provider is included in the conversation. Because this is useful for us as women preparing because we get really good clues about whether or not our care provider is truly aligned with us. And the earlier we start asking questions, the earlier we might see, whoa, I've definitely picked the wrong care provider. It's time to seek an alternative. I can totally understand where you're coming from and why there's a stigma. You know, when I was planning my birth as well, I didn't choose to use the word birth plan on my birth plan. I chose birth wishes. And even then I felt like I didn't want to even say wishes either. But I just felt like I was being too pushy if I say, this is what I want. <laughs> but I like oh, that this birth map I... is essentially a legal, it's a legal document. It's, it's a statement of your informed decisions, isn't it, Catherine? Exactly. Yeah, it's like an advanced care directive in palliative care. Because it's done in an informed and communicative way, it's got that weight that could hold up in court. It's interesting what you say about 
using the term wishes in the literature that came up a lot with using intentions or wishes or but what I'm finding is that using wishes and intentions or preferences is actually diminishing women's power because what it suggests is that oh you know if it's okay can we do this it's very submissive and in the literature they refer to that as negative politeness and apparently it's an artifact that is quite common in women is this need to appease the authority and so a lot of birth plans have been reduced to this submissive language and when you look at a lot of birth plan instructions it will say ensure that you're polite don't be adversarial from a feminist perspective basically this is saying just do as you're told in fact don't bother with the plan just do as you're told and flexible means compliant so what i've been trying to do with the wording around the birth map map is equal power we're all in this journey together and informed decisions that's what we're documenting here not wishes not preferences and certainly not something that is meaningless. How is that adversarial? It's good communication. And so letting women come into their power and this idea that women have to be polite all the time. What is that? Yes. Catherine, your book has three main pathways and you touched a little bit on the birth before arrival, the fast birth pathway. There is another pathway, which is the expected pathway. And the final pathway that you concentrate on is the contingency pathway. Would you like to tell us a little bit more about that? So the expected pathway for a VBAC woman is a VBAC. She's preparing for a VBAC. So that's a vaginal pathway. So throughout that pathway, she'll have an understanding of what her first stage is going to look like and her order of business in terms of managing the first stage, how she wants the atmosphere to be, what's important for her, whether she wants water involved, and then also understanding what the care provider expects for that in terms of monitoring or time limits or if this happens, we're going to want to do this because we're worried about uterine rupture. She can say, oh, you mean that I'll have a 93.85% chance of successfully having a VBAC because uterine rupture is incredibly rare? And they can say, oh, right, you've done your research. Okay, carry on. <laughs> so so she, she's better able to know and instruct for that first stage. And she moves into second stage where she's pushing. If this is her second birth, this is the first time she's experienced this. So she may have three or four different scenarios in her head depending on how the first day has played out and maybe she's thinking she'd like to catch the baby herself or have the partner catch the baby and she's making sure that she's setting the scene for that to happen with the second stage. And things like delayed cord clamping. From a medical viewpoint, Delayed cord clamping is defined as one minute. If you're really lucky, your care provider might give you three minutes. So if you want delayed cord clamping, which from your definition might mean 10 minutes or wait for white, that's something that you need to communicate and ensure that's in place and that your partner is watching and reminding. Put the scissors down. We're not cutting. We're not clamping. We're waiting. It's a evidence-based decision under all circumstances. So they're consent points that you need to understand and determine. And you might have 
three or four decision points that you're making there so that you action the decision in the moment, but you've considered it in advance. And so for the VBAC, the contingency pathway is going to be your cesarean pathways. And what I've done is broken down cesareans into four different types because I found it really difficult to lump cesarean into planned cesarean, as in before labor, and emergency cesarean, as in after labor. That wasn't very helpful to me because it made it feel like cesarean was always something really tense and a little bit scary, but it's not. It's more nuanced than that. You can have an in-labor non-emergency cesarean and that pathway is going to look very different to a cesarean that's needing to happen as a first or second degree urgency which is usually happening within half an hour a third or fourth level cesarean you can potentially wait a couple of hours for that it's not particularly urgent the baby's okay you're okay and it's just something that we're putting onto the process a non-emergency in labor cesarean can be a very powerful choice for a VBAC woman to put into her pathways because she may decide before the care provider is prepared to offer her that choice she may say I've reached my limit I don't want to have an augmented labor I want to move into the cesarean and it's a very very personal choice some women will be far more determined for the vaginal birth and prepared to try an augmented birth first but others will say I'm not prepared to follow that pathway and it's coming down to understanding the numbers and the risk within your own context because making that decision in the moment that's just incredibly stressful so what we're trying to achieve with the birth map is that we move forward with confidence we're not second guessing ourselves we get to the other side of birth where we're holding our baby and we're holding our fist up high going my god I did it no matter how it played out it was me all the way. That's very true. I I think regardless of vaginal or cesarean birth, when a woman has taken control of the situation and made the decisions herself, ultimately she will be feeling a lot more positive about the entire experience. And that's the ultimate goal. We want her singing her awesomeness at the other side because she is absolutely awesome we know that but we want her to know that too and another critical point with the map compared to a plan is that the partner is very integral whether that's the father or the non-pregnant partner or whether that's a birth support person including a doula this birth support team is drawn into the process so that everybody's on the same page and they start reading from the map they're on the same landscape and they all know their role but the woman is the decision maker and that's absolutely critical we talk about women-centered care but this is kind of creating a woman-led care but women can't take that lead if they haven't been given the means to feel confident if they haven't been given the information that they need and the knowledge gap can be huge and when knowledge is absent it's often replaced with fear so what the birth map aims to do primarily is replace that fear with understanding sometimes the fearful party is the partner we often hear we're going to see the obstetrician and get the machine that goes ping and all the bells and whistles because that's the safest possible thing and it's because the partner feels afraid 
that reassurance of the medicalness helps them to feel like something is protected. Something is going to be done if things aren't going right. But because that fear is driving that decision, it often leads to fear. It often leads to what's called the nocebo effect, where the fear of something bad happening means that it will happen. So that self-fulfilling prophecy. So one of the really useful pathways that I found was the fast birth pathway, which is about an unassisted birth. So this is where from a rural perspective, you're trying to avoid a birth before arrival, but sometimes fast birth happens and you need to be prepared. And so it's focusing on just normal physiology. And often the partner, after going through that process, they'll go, is that it? Is that all I have to do? And they just lose all that fear. And they are now empowered themselves to be a supporter rather than a protector. They start to realize the better alignment for the birth goals that they have. If your goal is to avoid a cesarean, as those who are planning a VBAC are doing, mm. you want to make sure that you're aligning with a care provider who is supporting that goal. And you also want to make sure that your partner is absolutely committed to that goal so that you're all working together to ensure that it's the most likely pathway that you'll follow. But if you do need to detour, you're also very prepared for that and it's happening on your terms. You might be feeling a bit sad about having to detour. You might be feeling angry about having to detour. And so we need to have in situation a, a preparation to deal with that emotion so that we can acknowledge when it's necessary to let go of the VBAC pathway and move on to a repeat cesarean mm. or we can recognize when no we're actually being coerced here we can continue along our pathway and we can do that really confidently because we understand absolutely completely that this is still the best pathway for us and that we've totally got this with consent which is embedded within maternity systems we're expected to provide informed consent for so many procedures everything from a vaginal exam which is often treated as a we're just going to do this just hop up on mm. the bed and we're mm. spoken down to and it's just brushed off but that actually is a consent point for some women once they realize that they have the power to say no that can be really uplifting so this is communicated in advance and then when it comes to that moment because the care provider has a very clear picture of you they're better able to provide that personalized actual woman-centered care. What you were saying there about uh, women, say, for example, refusing a cervical check during labor and saying, no, I guess in terms of the pathways you're creating, instead of simply saying no and putting a brick wall up there, you're talking about providing alternatives. Yes, maybe I don't consent to the cervical check. I'd like to do this instead you know, providing alternative options for women in those situations so that the care providers can be on board with the alternatives as well. That's right. And it's that advanced conversation, knowing in advance that you can say to your care provider, I'm not going to have routine vaginal exams. I'll ask for it if I want it. Or perhaps if the labour has been going on for X amount of time, then I might check in. But we also know that there are other ways to check progress that are perhaps more reliable. The key part is having that birth partner 
prepared to advocate for you because particularly in a VBAC situation where there probably is more unwarranted fear coming into mm. into play from the care provider as well as the partner and possibly the mum, those mm. fears have to be addressed in advance so that we can have a beautiful dance together through the labour where we're acknowledging our fears and replacing them with understanding. So the birth mapping process starts really early on. And for a VBAC woman, that process might start before she's even pregnant again. She'll be making sure she's mapping out all her options based on general knowledge about VBAC. And then once she is pregnant, she can navigate that based on how her own pregnancy is unfolding, how she feels as she gets closer to labour time. And she can be constantly renegotiating with herself on her terms, which pathways she wants to go down. And she needs to have full understanding, not fear-based decision-making or coercion happening. So what I have found with the birth map is because it's focused on communication is it's very good at replacing a plan which is considered inflexible with a map that really helps care providers to relax. And they see that the woman is confident, so they tend to relax more and trust that she knows what she's doing. Mm. And have you heard any feedback from midwives or any healthcare providers, doctors about the birth map, women who have presented in hospital with a birth map and what sort of feedback has come from there? Oh, it's just so exciting. They are loving it because it's it's putting them on the map as well. It's all about communication. So particularly for midwives who, who genuinely want to be with women, they want to provide that woman-centered care. This gives them the avenue of completely understanding what she wants. One of the best bits of feedback was, that was the best birth plan ever. I wish everybody would do it. I said, that's because it was a map, not a plan. Yeah. <laughs> this is it. This is the missing piece in maternity care. The obstetricians that I've shared it with are also providing really positive feedback and are looking to try and embed it within their practice. So, so far it's you know a small uptake because it's pretty new. And as the study unfolds, I'm expecting this to, it's revolutionary. It's going to change the world. It's going to be awesome. It's quite strange, and this is why I'm testing it with the PhD. Why is this simple change in structure and process and name quite powerful? So, Yeah, it's interesting that you were saying the one of the things about birth plans, you know, they've long been encouraged as a way of communicating needs and decisions, but without guidance and structure, many birth plans are thrown out the window, leaving parents vulnerable and at risk. So you're saying with that structure and consistency, there's something almost scientific then about the map as opposed to an ad hoc birth plan. And that is perhaps what care providers identify more with and are able to work with a bit more. The process of communication means that you're setting a scene and then creating a document that's very simple, basic dot points that if it is has been obstetric care, your obstetrician has signed off on it and ensured that the midwives that work for them are operating from that point of view rather than standard care. That's where a birth map can really help because if you're happy to to get on the conveyor belt and do what you're told you don't need a plan and you don't need a map you're going with the flow and that's the flow of the obstetrician or the midwife who's got your care and maybe that's the flow you want to be in and you've built a good trust with them and you're just happy for them to take the lead but because we have to provide informed consent along the way there is an expectation that we actually understand 
why we're taking that particular direction. So this process is about ensuring understanding and filling those knowledge gaps, which is why it is about communication with the care provider and seeking resources beyond the care provider. So within the book, what I've done is give starting points for research. So those resources, Catherine, would they be like pertaining to, say, gestational diabetes or GBS, things that can come up during pregnancy, these categories that we can fall into. Do you have information in the book about that as well? Exactly. Whilst I don't give the answers, there are questions to prompt with the care provider, but I also provide a few suggested resources to get you started. And resources that I particularly like are midwife thinking, particularly for things like GBS and gestational diabetes because she's just got a fantastic way of writing it in an easy to understand manner. She's a a PhD midwife. She understands things at a really high level, but she's got that knack of putting it into normal language so that we can understand it and put it in our own context. Uh, Sarah Wickham is another really good resource. Throughout the book, there'll be links to different suggested resources but they're often a starting point you might find that resource and think "Mm, it's still not quite answering the questions that I need but it gets you on the right track to asking more questions so you can be really confident in your responses when you do start to feel pressure unfortunately for women speaking assertively can be really hard we're very and particularly when there's a power imbalance with the care provided we're very good at making room making space for others and being a bit more submissive and non-confrontational and being assertive is not an adversarial thing to do it's something that does take some confidence and understanding why you're standing your ground but it doesn't have to be done in an aggressive way and I find that with the birth map because it's done over time you build a a better relationship and understanding even in the absence of continuity of care because you're getting to understand the culture of the location that you're birthing in it's knowing what your rights are and knowing what your options are you can make your decisions and stand firmly and if your partner is well versed they can back you up. That's why the partner is so important in this process because the partner is the personification of the map. That's often the time where the partner really comes into play is when the pressure starts to be put on. And I think, as you mentioned, Steph, was that it's about care provider confidence as well. We're choosing to birth within a medical landscape and that's the landscape we're navigating. So we need to work with that system. It doesn't mean we're agreeing with it. It doesn't mean we have to do what we're told but we do need to make sure we're getting on that same wavelength so that we can really understand what's going on and be very clear every single pathway belongs to the woman. And it's about making sure that she feels respected and heard throughout the process because that's where we know the ultimate positive birth comes from is did the woman feel involved in that process? And for partners, did they feel that they were also being able to be supportive, understanding what's going on, rather than uh, standing back like a deer in the headlights going, 
I don't know what's going on. I want to help, but I can't. And if they both enter into parenting feeling traumatized, it can be very hard to find your rhythm as a parent. It's not focused on just the event, just the big day itself. It's about making sure we're navigating to what's going to happen on the other side as well. Catherine, with that talk of partners being like a deer in the headlights, (laughs) I think we often see this in labour and in other parts of the process. What would be your advice to partners out there? What's something they can do to take more responsibility and support in their role? The first thing to do is listen. Listen to your own fears. What's driving you? What makes you feel safest? What do you understand about yourself? So as a partner, first looking inward and going, okay, where am I at? Why am I feeling the way I'm feeling? Because particularly after when we're preparing for a VBAC, we've got a previous birth that we have to consider. We have to unpack what happened last time. What worked last time? What did I do really well last time? What didn't I do really well last time? Where did I feel lost last time? So asking first of themselves, what they need to have happen differently for themselves. Then they can start a conversation with their partner. What are your goals? You want to have a VBAC. Okay, let's start with what that looks like. What knowledge you have? Why do you want a VBAC? Why is this so important? Who do you want to have care for you? And they communicate, they talk, they start dancing together in this journey and really paint a picture of acknowledging what happened last time, what they liked, what they didn't like, What's their important goals? What are they prepared to let go of? And what does your partner, what does your, your woman need? What are her goals and what does she need from you? Did she need you to stand at the head end and pat her? Did she need more touch? Did she need you to advocate better for her? And so as you unpack what happened last time, and it's going to look very different for everybody, you can start having a conversation to build what your goals are as a couple. And at the end of the day, at the end of that conversation, the idea is to get to a point where the woman is the direction. She's the true north. She's the one that actually makes the ultimate decision. And the partner, their goal is to get on board and understand that. I'm here to support you. This is not my physical journey. This is your physical journey. But my job is to be your emotional sidekick, the Robin to your Batman. And when they've got themselves on the same playing field, so when they do pick the care provider that best fits their goals, they're starting from the very beginning with the same goal in mind, having addressed the fears. Because if we're making fear-driven decisions, we're often going to default into the medical model where we hand over our power to the care provider because it's much easier to say, well, it was out of my hands and to let someone else take charge because it can be really overwhelming to say, wow, I have to own this. And the way we own it is with knowledge. Knowledge is power. And to apologize in advance for a terrible stereotype, but particularly male partners, they, they don't, <laughs> they, men will not ask for directions, but they will read a map. What this does is give them something solid to cling to where they can say, oh yeah, no, we've totally got this. If this, then that. It's a problem solving mindset. It's very different giving birth to being the sidekick. As the sidekick, you're watching on, you're trying to manage 
the situation as best you can. Keep hold the space if you like. Keep the environment calm and in the best interest of your partner so that she can just disappear into herself and do what she knows she can do best. What her total goal is, is to just allow that baby to move out of her body in a beautiful dance and let her slip into that zone. No one has to interrupt her with trivial questions because they've discussed these things in advance. Chances are, because it's a VBAC, there's going to be some sort of monitoring required. And depending on where you're birthing and what your own history is and how the pregnancy is playing out, you might have options to have that as intermittent monitoring or the monitors that can go in the water. You might have a few different options that you can discuss in advance to ensure that even though this birth is happening within a medical situation, you still have a lot of control over what the atmosphere is and the ability for her to just disappear and be the goddess that Ina May talks about. If a woman doesn't look like a goddess in labor, someone isn't treating her right. And it's about respect. It's about acknowledging her as a whole person in the way that she needs to be acknowledged, including whether that means she doesn't want to be acknowledged as a woman. Mm -hmm. So I refer to woman, but I do acknowledge that not everybody wants to use those terms. But Mm -hmm. individual, she is her. She is her in all her marvellous glory and totally capable of this amazing journey, however it plays out and it's on her terms. Do you think because that space is so, you know, there's so much going on, when we talk about informed decision-making, that's one of the barriers for women to have that process taking place during labour just because of the nature of everything that's going on. Absolutely. And it's not, and it's because it's not presented as an informed decision. It's presented to us as informed consent. And the word consent means to say yes. So when you're asked to provide consent, you're being asked to say yes. You're not being asked to make a decision. And that can imply, particularly when there's a power imbalance, that if you don't say yes, the alternative is not going to be very fun. Mm. And there's an underlying threat to that. Mm. So often women will consent, not because they actually agree or even understand what's happening, but because they feel that if they say no, they're not going to be treated as kindly as perhaps they do if they say yes. Care providers actually do want to help, but sometimes their idea of help is not necessarily what you actually need. And that's where we want to try and balance it out so that we can understand that some women want less intervention, some women want a little more, some women need quiet, some women need coaching. We're all very different. It's your space while you're in the hospital. They want to reduce cesarean rates quite rightly because we don't want to be unnecessarily cutting babies out and putting mothers through the six weeks recovery if we can avoid it. But if that labor is playing out in a way where the mother says, you know what, I'm actually getting really tired. I'm not enjoying this. I'm not finding my rhythm. There's an option there that she can ask for because this is the modern world and she has every right to experience this in a positive way. So for some women, that pathway doesn't feel powerful. For other women, it can feel very awesome. For some women, a key part of this decision-making is staying home as long as possible so that you can avoid temptation for intervention. So you might understand that for yourself, it's 
if it's there, I know I'll, I'll use, use it. Just like the chocolate that you hide in the freezer from the kids. If it's there, <laughs> you, you, you are totally happy. <laughs> it's not even the kids. It's I know me. what you're talking about. <laughs> you, you get it. You get it. That's where the fast birth pathway is really important because a lot of people do aim, regardless of whether it's their first birth, their 10th birth, a VBAC or not, they do tend to aim to stay at home for as long as possible because if you get to the labor ward too soon, the risk of intervention does increase. Staying at home for as long as possible may end up being, oh dear, here it comes. We're on on our own. And so having an understanding of what that will look like. And it's better to stay at home and get on with it than to risk being on the side of the road, even if $150 million has been invested in upgrading that road, as the uh, Prime Minister <laughs> recently suggested was the solution. It's a huge spectrum and what's right for one will not be right for another. So throughout the book, you'll see the theme of no one way. There's your way, no matter what. And that's a really important message because individualized care means respecting all choices understanding that a woman's autonomy is very much based on not just her physical well-being but also her mental well-being and women nearly always take into account not just herself but her extended family and of course the baby she's not making rash decisions i'm yet to meet a woman who is making a decision because she just wants a particular experience it's not about incense and candles burning and, and whale song. This is about making informed decisions about what's best for you and your baby and your family. Women aren't seeking just a birth experience. They're seeking to set themselves up for what comes afterwards because we know that how we experience birth does stay with us. It's the first day of the rest of our life and it matters because we matter. Thank you so much, Catherine. I think, Steph, have you got any other questions? I did have a few, but now they've sort of gone out the window like the birth plan. <laughs> but I was just going to direct everyone to Catherine's website, which is www.bellabirth.org. It's the home of informed birth preparation. All of the resources that we've been discussing with her and her book, you can find those anyone uh, on a VBAC journey or otherwise, really. But um, thanks, Catherine, for all of your discussion today. There's just so much to take away. Very helpful indeed for everyone. Pleasure. Yeah, thank you so much, Catherine, for the work that you're doing in this space. And we really wish you all the best of luck with your PhD. And we hope to see the birth map embedded in the system, as you were talking about before. We think that that would be really great um, in achieving positive birth outcomes for women everywhere. So thank you. Fabulous. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this bonus episode. If you'd like to feature on our podcast and have VBAC specific information you'd like to share with our listeners, please email us at vbackbirdstories at gmail.com. VBAC Birth Stories is a podcast where we share women's lived experiences. Please be advised that it's not intended to replace medical advice. If you have any concerns at all during your pregnancy, please always speak to your healthcare provider.